the story behind the powerful movement Teachers Consent, Pretty Privilege in the Activism Space, and her new book Consent Laid Bare. I'm Maggie. And I'm Jasmine, and you're listening to Culture Club. This is our monthly interview with a person we find interesting and that we think you will too. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Chanel Contrast became a household name in 2021 after beginning an Instagram poll asking for Australian girls' and women's stories of sexual assault. After an outpouring of responses, Chanel began Teach Us Consent, a movement that urged the government to include sexual consent education in the curriculum. Since then, Chanel has created huge change in the country and won the Young People's Human Rights Medal. As of this week, Chanel is also an author. Her first book, Consent Laid Bare, explores sex, consent and the education we all should have had. Before we begin, we'd like to give a content warning for rape, sexual assault and harassment. Take care of yourself when listening to this app and moving through the world. And if you ever need it, call the Lifeline hotline on 13 11 14. Chanel, thanks so much for joining us today. Congrats on releasing your first book. What has the press tour been like so far? It's been pretty surreal, to be honest. It's uh, So I had a big party in Sydney on Tuesday and then I've had um, events in like kind of like all major cities and it's been crazy meeting all these people who are just like so passionate about the same things I'm passionate about. And also really weird because I was in London for so much of the last few years and so many things I did, you know, talks or engagements or whatever were over Zoom where I was just kind of like in my room alone and then it's just been so fun to suddenly feel the actual energy of people around. No, completely. This is actually our first Culture Club interview we've done in person. Mm. So Ooh, yeah. yeah, you're our first in-person guest. So no it's like, way. God, like eye contact. Yeah. yeah. No, no like Zoom lag, none of that. Yeah, it's no just, connection cool. issues. We've got so the energy so in the to. room too. How yeah. good. <laughs> we are sat opposite like you and Jazz is in a blazer, so it is giving job interview a little bit. It yeah. Is. It Sorry. Is. I didn't it's get like the memo. 2v1. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, can you tell us what um, Consent Laid Bear is about? Consent Laid Bear is, I kind of in my mind split it into three parts. The first bit I think is quite educational around concepts of consent and rape culture. And I also think that someone who's still, I don't know, you may or may not disagree, keen to hear what you think about it. Someone who feels as though they're like quite clued up on these sort of things, like quite into it, will still learn something, I think, I hope, from that educational content. Um, and then the second bit kind of takes like a zoom outwards and looks at like wider patriarchal structures that kind of like distort our desire and look at, you know, some feminist theories and gets a bit theoretical, gets a little bit radical um, and I guess encourages people to think more about these concepts. And then the third section zooms back in really closely again and looks at like kind of like what can we do like what's accountability the reality of the situation and it's a bit more tangible Mm. and the very very last section of the book is called four boys and men and it is something that because 
unfortunately a lot more girls and women are going to read this book than boys and men even though more boys and men should mm-hmm. probably need to read this book the book wouldn't need writing if more boys and men read, <laughs> yeah. read the book um so it's just a one chapter thing that can be passed along to kind of like a boy or a man in your life to try to you know and it kind of summarizes the book and hits the main things that i think is most important for boys to understand when coming to this conversation but yeah i love this book i've read it over the space of a week um and it was challenging but so powerful and really insightful you're right i think no matter where you are at um in your journey you're getting things out of it and i left with so so many things like i took photos of so many paragraphs and you i love see. that i love people telling me they took photos of paragraphs it's my favorite thing because they send them to me and i just get like a little snippet of like what they really liked and it's so different for everyone it's so good so this feels like quite um special like I swear I just like underline things I really liked I'm like oh we can actually talk to you about it which I think <laughs> is so unique that doesn't really happen when you're reading a book uh, for instance in the end of your introduction you say I warn you that whether you are a victim a perpetrator or a bystander these feelings will be uncomfortable many of you will have been more than one of those but no one has been none that mm-hmm. end of the introduction I read it I've reread it so many times because <laughs> I found that just so kind of striking can you talk to us about that so i think in a rape culture where these systems and structures are all around us a disturbing amount of us no matter your gender have been subjected to sexual violence um and disturbing amount of us no matter your gender have upheld sexual violence maybe not in or rape culture you know maybe not to the like extreme that many boys have But I think that it's also pointing out that even as like a young woman reading this book, we've all done things that have contributed to this culture. Like, you know, when I was younger, I used to use the word slut all the time and I had no idea what that meant or like what that contributed to at a wider level. And then also this idea of bystander, like how many of us have seen someone be catcalled on the side of the road and not done anything about it? How many of us have seen someone, you know, be like, oh my God, look at this nude and like not said that's really not okay. You know, when we were younger, most of it. Um, which is why I think that, yeah, these categories of upholding rape culture, perpetrating it, being a victim of the culture and um, being a bystander of the culture, I feel like we're kind of like always a little bit of all three. Mm. Super interesting. And that line also stood out to me. And I said to Maggie, I didn't finish it in the time space because I had to stop quite often. And it was bringing up a lot of things that I guess um, I hadn't thought that deeply about because so much of it happened when I was a teenager. And, but even as like an older woman now thinking that like, oh, I know about consent and I know about sex and relationships and like you think everything's tied up in a ribbon now. I still learned a lot from the parts that I did read. So I think if people talking to the audience, I think if you think like, oh, I'm not a high school student, like I don't mm. need to read this book. I think it still is for people who, for everyone, like everyone should read it because it is breaking down the, the systems that we live in like every single day. A piece of feedback that I got um, yesterday from someone which was really nice was that this book like can also be used to give to someone to Mm. kind of take off emotional labor that we so often have to do as women you know whether it's like 
I don't know, because there are people in my life who I do take the time to have these hard conversations with. I mean, I, I do it a lot, but like, you know, you're constantly having these conversations with like guy friends or like brothers or like dads, like whatever. And it's, it's tiring, it's exhausting. And like, it's so hard to kind of like keep your calm, cool in these sort of conversations. Um, and I was so thankful for her to say like, I love this because it just like took off all this emotional labor I have to do now because this really summarizes like so many experiences and I can just give to someone and then they can, they can process in their own time and like go through yeah. those emotions. Yeah, so true in that like having to, I think having to like educate other people and then think that deeply about it for yourself is a big reason why a lot of the time women especially can just like get get on with it in mm. a way. Um, but speaking of high schoolers, it is incredible to know that a generation of Australian high schoolers know your name and know your work. So what's the story behind Teach Us Consent? So Teach Us Consent started as an Instagram poll. It then quickly moved to a Google Doc, which is so funny. Like, <laughs> <laughs> anyone could edit or change anything. Really good good faith system. And then um, I was like, oh, I think this isn't working. It's crashing because there's thousands of people on it. Um, so launched a website called teachersconsent.com that hosted a petition for consent education to be made mandatory in the Australian school system. And then also a platform where people could write their testimonies of sexual assault that occurred during the Australian school system that they felt could have been preventable with consent education to highlight the need for it. Um, it got almost 7,000 testimonies and that was just what we could read and publish. We, we stopped at a certain point because like, as you said, even reading the book can be like confronting and hard. So we were just like, I, I think almost 7,000 makes a point. Yeah. Um, and it got 50,000 signatures um, and after kind of like a year of campaigning and advocacy and a bit like an extreme grassroots movements going on in Australia, school wa- walkouts happening in different parts of the country, like so many people taking it upon themselves to email their MP, their principal, all these sort of things. Um, the I presented at a meeting of all the ministers of education from around the country and they unanimously decided to mandate consent education in the Australian curriculum from kindergarten to year 10 every year. So amazing. <laughs> Very exciting. So that's the history of teachers' consent. And whilst I'm obviously like such a passionate believer in consent education and again, like in a practical solution form, that being really important across the whole of Australia, trying to prevent sexual assault and rape is like just not good enough. So I think this book is very much a call for like a better picture of like, well, what can healthy, intimate, empathetic sexual relationships look like um and like again those topics that are covered in that middle section that go deep into like you know male gaze beauty patriarchy all these different things you can't really cover those in a classroom Mm -hmm. and it's there's also stuff in there that's probably not appropriate to cover in a classroom yes that's teacher's consent (laughs) i think by having these conversations now no matter how hard they are you can see what like you can see the change happening you can see it chipping away at these values and these standards that have been upheld for decades and longer um so i think it's just really like a really important text and it makes me so happy that i was at a dinner table the other day with um like my partner's family extended family and i was talking to like a 16 year old girl and she's like oh yeah like of course i know i know chanel i know her (laughs) stuff and i was like that is so good to see almost like 
brushing it away like duh like yeah. it's, it's an obvious thing like yes of course we are involved in something that's so like monumental in the Australian like political landscape mm-hmm. I think is really refreshing um yeah I did want to kind of oh that's sweet yeah I kind of wanted to touch on what you were saying before about kind of that labor of talking to your your guy friends your your brothers your dads etc because one thing this might sound funny as someone who doesn't have that many close guy friends one thing that I found a bit surprising is just you it seems like you have a lot of close male relationships in your life like you've got some great guy friends um in in this book you mentioned like your dad and you talk about your boyfriend I'm wondering um even sorry I wanted to mention at the start as well um teacher's consent you started with your friend Matt as well Mm. how has pursuing sexual consent activism affected your relationships with men in your own life it has affected my relationships with men a lot um some in some really good ways some in some really bad ways it's I think doing the work that I've done over the last few years reading those testimonies like thousands of testimonies of sexual assault where almost all of them were perpetrated by a man and doing the research for this book like you know you see a one-line stat or like a, a like an anecdote or something of some sort of case but I had to read like in depth about it in order to write that one line and that has very much changed how I kind of like see men as like a sex class and I think class is kind of like the right word there because it has made me feel much more like obviously I know we have gender inequality but it has made me feel much more privy to this like Mm. this ranking system um and it has definitely meant I have a lot of distrust it's actually quite funny because I would say the book is quite empathetic like people Mm. have borderline said it almost it almost sounds like borderline like forgiving towards like men um but I actually genuinely feel like lots of kind of like internal anger at like a lot of these sort of this this system this like idea of like men as a class but in reality it has also strengthened so many of my male friendships because the the you know men who have been so supportive who's been part of this movement who have helped direct it because it is really men that we're trying to change um it's been incredible to see like my brothers and my dad who you know we never had conversations like this before like I had no idea what they thought about them other than like throwaway comments of like whatever it was incredible to see how much they're willing to learn reflect be supportive um there's even individual men who you know, have been willing to give testimonies as a perpetrator, talking about what made them perpetrate sexual assault. And they've been involved in making in the activism around legislative change, you know, saying that the example that's in the book is um, someone was willing to let me record them talking about how they accidentally stealth someone, or accidentally, quotation marks, they did it on purpose, obviously, but they didn't understand the weight of their actions because, you know, they're an 18-year-old boy, they were struggling to get hard and they were drunk and they put their sexual entitlement in front of another's body autonomy in kind of like a split second decision. And that's something they've regretted. And, you know, 10 years later, he's now a man and has been willing to hold that accountability. And, you know, I had a round table with attorney generals and shadow attorney generals from around the country trying to change legislation around explicitly criminalizing stealthing. 
to raise awareness in the public that this is an act that's not okay. Also, Stell thinks the non-consensual removal of a condom during sex, by the way. And his voice talking about that and like holding space for that was so powerful in changing these legislators' minds. To hear him say, I didn't know it was wrong, it felt wrong, I didn't know it was a crime, I wouldn't have done it if I knew how wrong. That's like, that's what we need here. We really need like men to step up and be a part of this conversation. So yeah, it's done both. It's kind of like the first quote in the book is actually be ruthless with systems and kind with people. And I guess in terms of the systems part, it's made me like very frustrated towards many men because of the violence that has been perpetrated over history and still now. And then in terms of being kind with people, it's also made me be very sympathetic to the way that they've grown up and what shaped their behaviours in the past when they were children. Mm. I don't think the way that I handle this is good or correct (laughs) at all because if I'm being honest, there's a mixture of two main kind of emotions that rise to the topic, uh, to the surface, especially this year, I think. I really look to your book. I look um, to Hannah Ferguson's book. I literally look to music like Olivia Rodrigo. I'm not even joking. (laughs) I feel so much anger and Mm. annoyance and frustration at men that used to fully just be a lot of fear but Mm. now has kind of transcended to a lot of anger and frustration and at times pity Mm. and just like I am so fed up a lot of the time as well and I don't think that's the best way to move about the world and like I half jokingly a lot of time I'm like I hate men I hate men I hate men and sometimes it's just easier to kind of let it out that way but you're right like at the crux of it there are just so many so many just complicated feelings and and things attached i think it's like a difference between because i i really also feel like a lot of those emotions like really funny like my therapist one day like i was telling her about like dreams i have and she was like dude <laughs> like she was like because i'm like a very happy like you know i'm like very chill like, like you oh, yeah. said i'm very like polite nice to men whatever and she's like there's something in there that you need to address about your feelings towards like thing and like I've said a few things that she's like, that's really not okay. Um, Just like in passing as a joke. But um, I guess if we're thinking about, I, that's me as like a woman, but then as like an activist or like a political campaigner or someone who's trying to make change, I think you have to, the same way we're asking, the same way I'm asking. And I think a lot of women are asking boys and men to be empathetic about the situation. We have to be, yeah, I mean, I think pity is a funny word for you to say mm. there because, again, like everyone's been, you know, we've been perpetrator victim and bystanders at different points mm. and men are massive victims of rape culture and of patriarchy. Mm. Yeah, this kind of reminds me a lot of the Me Too movement when it was like, that was an amazing time in history in general, but like when a lot of women were sharing their stories and it got to the point of like, but where are the men's stories? So mm. it's really interesting that you had that man's perspective to take to make the change. And that shows that, like, we do need men to stand up and, like, share their own side, which takes a lot of bravery, I think. Mm. And you reference, like, bravery in the book. Yeah. And also something that I think is so brave is – I hope he doesn't mind. I, I mean, he wouldn't mind me saying this. That man saw me in person um, recently and came up and, like – told me who he was i had no oh, idea what he looked oh. like i'd only ever spoken to him on the phone wow so it's kind of like an anonymous well he, he messaged me on instagram but his dp wasn't his face and we only ever spoke on the phone we never zoomed or anything 
Um, and I just didn't really thought anything of it. And we had like a really long phone chat and I didn't realize who he was at first wow. because he like was trying to like yeah. say it without saying it. And I was yeah. like, ah. and like I do meet a lot of people on Zoom and stuff yeah. like that. So I was kind of like, um, and then he was like, and I was like, oh, and I was like, the fact you just came up to me and like said hi, I was just like, he was he, like, gave off the air of like being like quite nervous about it and I was just like I really like back that that you yeah. like came somewhere where like you knew I would be and like um knew I would be talking about mm. these things and was like willing to do that yeah oh so, yeah really cool how do you take care of yourself when you are in these in these conversations and you're doing this type of work it must be full on hearing, like you said, 7,000 stories and going through that and making these changes. So how do you take care of yourself? That's oh, such a bad answer. But I just don't really. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I have like, I didn't know, like, yeah, I don't have a good answer. Sometimes I just like switch off. I mean, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't have an answer. That's interesting that you say that. Um, because before you said something that was so interesting to me and I and I think um, you were like, you spoke about yourself <laughs> as separately a woman and then you as an activist. Mm. Do you have separation when it comes to that? Like, how is it? Because it, it's your name. Like, people know you mm. through your work. It, they, they, as like, for an outsider's perspective, it doesn't seem like there's like overly that much separation there. I guess, oh God, that is also such an interesting question. I guess there's not... Yeah, I mean, I guess I do feel very intertwined with the work I do to a point that, like, it's gotten to a point now where it does, like, define me and I wouldn't really know. Mm. Like, if I had to stop working for six months, I wouldn't, like, know what to do with my time. Like, I love work. I actually texted my best friend the other day being, like, I think I'm addicted to work because I realised that I don't like Saturdays. Oh! Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's like, I hate Saturdays. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it is, yeah, a big part of everything. But I guess I do see when I'm... When I'm in an activist role in terms of you know if I have the opportunity to meet with a politician or if I'm like speaking you know on I don't know like I'm doing national press club in November and like when I'm doing those sort of things I feel as though I'm kind of like representing a cohort and have to be like working towards a theory of change whereas when I'm just being me I think I'm much more like fragile and emotive and like angry and upset and fearful and then also sometimes really like you know, like, I rely on my big brothers so much and, like, such a, like, daddy's girl as well and, like, I love my boyfriend so much and, like, I'll be doing something, like, disgustingly cute and I'll be like, ugh. <laughs> like, so I feel like there is, I guess, uh, they're very linked, but I do feel like there is a difference. And you spoke about a gender studies class at uni and coming to it barely being exposed to feminism. So how do you think your upbringing and your Greek ethnicity has influenced you and your work I think I think rape culture is everywhere in the world and I think that it's kind of experienced on like a different spectrum depending well I guess I'm let me phrase that I think the patriarchy seeps into every corner of the world and kind of like how much it is impeding on your life like is very dependent on your like personal context like your family life your like where you go to school how you spend your time like where you work and then like, what country you're in like it keeps going wider and wider and I think for me I had this weird thing where I so I grew up in Australia so then I'm not saying we obviously still have like a significant patriarchy here but less so than many other places in the world I went to an all-girls school which was very much like this idea of like you can do anything you can be anything like you know we create like you know powerful women like 
I was almost ignorant to the patriarchy because of how safe that space was and how much our teachers and our peers kind of like supported each other. Like it was such a root shock to then go to university and suddenly be like in a room with so many men, so many men and be like, Oh, you guys all think I'm really dumb. Um, um, But my like personal context, so I had this like, you know, my parents being first generation Australian and it felt like they were still very much more in the patriarchy Mm. than kind of like my peers' parents, unless my peers' parents were Greek. I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends who are second-gen Greek and also second-gen Indian, and it feels like there's lots of kind of like crossover between us where I think there's something weird about because our grandparents like fled or like displaced or whatever, they like really held on to the culture of the time of the place they left. Mm. And, you know, Greece, (laughs) Greece in the 50s wasn't like a particularly progressive place. So them trying to like continue that culture meant that it felt as though I was just like it was a bit more obvious to me at home like you know ideas around purity culture and like slut shaming and like comments about things that people wore that I wore and like um you know their ideas about gender and like very much like a woman's role to like get married have babies be a good housewife like all these sort of things it just felt like a little bit more extreme in my immediate household than it did at any of my friends houses or like at school so even though I had no idea about any of these things until I started gender studies classes once I did I like couldn't unsee it and I could kind of see it a bit more extremely than I think was around me before yeah but to add to that as well, because this is when you were in uni, you know, we're having this conversation about entering your gender studies class after you were doing like IT, was it? Yeah. Um, that's when you're, I don't know how old you were, like, you know, 18 to 20 years yeah. old. And especially in progressive left leaning spaces, there's always that kind of race to one up each other or be like up to date with the latest mm-hmm values and everything almost like um it encourages like gotcha moments of like oh you're not progressive enough like Mm -hmm. oh you don't know that already so I'm wondering how was that navigating that space as a young adult because are we talking about me at that age or that class that age I would say just in general yeah so again context I grew up in East Eastern suburbs I wouldn't call it a like yeah true left like (laughs) one up gotcha who's more progressive like it's definitely not seen as like cool like Mm. to be progressive like Mm. I was very shocked to like I only got back from London like a week ago and I was very shocked to like have some conversations um with friends male ones at that um who like you know weren't sure that they were voting yes and their reasons for voting no weren't informed it was about how much paperwork they had to do uh-huh. um <laughs> sorry i know like, i'm like died inside yeah. just i know <laughs> i'm like it's a referendum you do whatever you want but i like i mean i will vote yes and i will but as in um that's that's a really shit mm. excuse um and i mean yeah like it's it's not as if i mean i'm officially um apolitical I don't support any political party because the issue of preventing sexual assault and rape is a human rights issue not a political issue Mm -hmm. um but there are definitely many people around me even my age who you know vote right wing still and um support those sort of things so it was it was never like oh you don't know this it was actually more like you're doing gender studies (laughs) what like are you okay like why um yeah, like moving from an IT degree to an arts mm. degree, everyone was like, 
You're right. <laughs> That's so interesting. No, I like the clarification. I think sometimes, at least for me, it's like you just find yourself in these bubbles where you just assume mm. that most people think the same way in, yeah. or like, you know, had the same experience at uni or whatever. So, yeah. No, yeah, I think I grew up similar to you in that way of like when you go back home, people think a totally different way from your like inner city or like more progressive spaces. And it's always like such a trip being like, I grew up with you and we have like similar friends mm. and interests, but like we have such different values. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting. But one thing I really, that made me think a lot in your book was your um, chapter on pretty privilege mm. and existing as like a white person. And you write, in order to be listened to while you critique the system, your only option is to opt into it in some meaningful way. Can you share more about your experience navigating activism as um, like a young, pretty white woman? Um, it's str- <laughs> I actually remember I said this to my brother once and I was trying to explain to him pretty privileged. This is ages ago, like when the petition first kicked off. And I think he thought I meant that I was just being like, yeah, I'm really hot. <laughs> but I was being like, no, the fact that I'm like, why? And, and he was like, never say that again. <laughs> but I was trying to explain the fact that I'm like, white, um, you know, fits society's standards of, you know, what is deemed beautiful um, in terms of being like able-bodied, like, um, you know, not like whatever, you know, all these things. Mm. Um and also I, I acknowledge that I do come from um, privilege as well. Like, um, and I think it's, I'm refer- that comes straight after I'm talking about Dworkin, who was like a very famous feminist who like didn't really opt into like traditional beauty standards. Like you would never find her like wearing makeup or having her hair like blow dried or whatever. Um, and then also kind of like comparing to Florence Given. And I love both of these feminists equally, but Florence is like very, like her Instagram's like very like aesthetically pleasing and like she's very like cool and she's very like, you know, again, pretty, mm-hmm. um, even though her book is called like Women Don't Know You Pretty. And I guess I'm just trying to say that you kind of have to exist within, it. Put, the patriarchy puts you in this bind where you do have to exist within it in some meaningful way in order to be able to do anything because society is really cruel to people who do not fit into those standards mm. of what we think are pretty. And being like things like being white, things like being able-bodied, um, things like being privileged contribute to the fact that people listen to you more, which is really problematic. But I, I do think that, even though my brother told me never to say that again. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it also does like the main form of, I guess, criticism about me, which I completely agree with, is that... Um, that the fact that I'm, you know, kind of white is maybe one of the reasons why I've had such like a loud voice in this platform. Um, I think because I started the teacher's consent campaign, that's like a very tangible thing. So it's like very hard to like understand like where that line like could have came in, like depending on who did what. But I think it's undeniable that like privilege and like even connections played into like the success of this campaign in a meaningful way. And because in 2021 it was very much like me and Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and um, Brittany Higgins has since um, like let the public know that um, she is actually of Indigenous descent. But um, at the time people didn't know that and people commenting on the fact that like there's three large voices in this 
in about this topic right now, a topic that disproportionately affects indigenous women, women of color, disabled women, and the three white voices speaking about it. And it's something that I very personally struggled with to be like, I acknowledge that, but at the same time, I would still rather like get my message out there and just talk about that being a problem and give platform to as many other survivors as possible in that process yeah it's like you say in the book like we all exist within these class systems so sometimes you have to like you have these privileges and people are going to pay more attention to you whether that is a good thing or a bad thing in terms of ethics and our society but like if you can get your message across that's a good thing right I don't know yeah yeah not for me to decide but yeah I'm definitely like aware of that and I think that pretty privilege also exists like again like someone literally being like you know more like like a model gets more like pretty privileged than like I don't know but pretty much everyone else I guess <laughs> but then um but what I'm talking about when I say pretty privilege in this book is this idea of society's ideas of pretty in a large scale which um are very exclusionary to a large proportion of the population mm. yeah i love having these conversations because um there's no set answer mm. and this intersects in like so many different assets of our life um even when you're saying that like you said a few times like oh like you know people were paying attention to us like we had loud voices right like kind of the the idea of having loud voices whereas I would like almost disagree it's like no you're using your voice and it's about like the attention paid to those voices which mm. isn't about your your quote-unquote volume or like what you're saying and doing but it's mm. just how the public reacts to that true and, and like to what extent can you actually cater or control that you can't I like as someone who's like obviously Asian like it's an interesting paradox where I'm like oh sometimes I will look at um, other like let's say white women in like the media space or public figure space and I'm like oh, I just get like frustrated I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder being like oh god they just it feels like they get more like attention and opportunities and I mean they do and in other ways but it's also like hmm it's not necessarily their fault you know it's mm. not their choice so um I find it just like an interesting mm. I think <laughs> yeah, it's another like be ruthless with systems be kind with mm -hmm. people situation mm, whereas like we can talk about the fact that it's really yeah I actually really like what you said so many people are saying the exact same thing that like you know me Grace and Brittany are saying and then um you know I think the the media also sensationalizes certain stories you know allegations inside parliament house are obviously going to be much more like sensationalized than something that happens at any other workplace Grace Dane was Australian of the year and mm. there were 7,000 testimonies so it's all very like media hooky stories mm. but the structural problems of the fact that these are listened to and then the be kind with people facts means that that's not, um, that doesn't mean that we should say, you know, Grace, you shouldn't speak about these things because mm. her experience is just as valid as, yeah. Completely. I really want to talk about this. One of the ideas that you brought up in the book that challenged us was around uteruses and power and you say if everyone could get pregnant we wouldn't have inequalities of the sexes can you please explain what you meant meant by that i just think a lot of the way the process in which women have been domesticated throughout history came from the fact that we could and did rear children and like if we're thinking back to like agriculture days uh, when agriculture was invented and there was physical labor to be done 
and suddenly this division of tasks happened. Women were kept in the home, in the private sphere, and then in the public sphere, men were able to go and make policies and legislation whilst they also did like physical labor outside. And then in a world where agriculture was just emerging, the more children you had, the more workers you had on your land. So it suddenly became a prime function of women to produce children in this way. And that was seen as well to contribute to society, to, you know, have a family. And then of course the idea of, you know, because obviously whoever made the policy that the firstborn son inherits the land. I'm guessing that was a man. Yeah. <laughs> something something tells me. Yeah, something tells me that was the case. So yeah, even this idea of like producing like a son, like almost like an heir the way we see and like we mm. I mean we still see it with like commentary on like royals and like Game of Thrones and like, you know, all this sort of thing. And I even see it in like people's gender reveals videos, like when the mm. dad's like, Oh no, it's a girl <laughs> oh. like goes and like high fives all his mates and it's like I mean yeah and um and I think that also the way that our capitalist society works is very much and this is something I'm very passionate about it's very much geared to a 24 hour male hormone Mm -hmm. cycle and so I speak about PDMDD briefly in the book I actually can't remember if I mentioned that I used to have it or not but I used to have um pre-menstrual dysphoric disorder i don't know if you've ever spoken on the podcast so people know what that is it's basically like it's basically most commonly misdiagnosed as bipolar or bpd because um it's your body's basically intolerant to hormones that it produces for two weeks of your cycle so for me for two weeks of the month i was like completely fine i was like myself i was like like superhuman could like smash out so much work like whatever and then um as soon as my progesterone increased and my estrogen dropped, um, I would literally like, like I would just be like a shell of myself basically. And 5% of um, females have PMDD and it has a 15% attempted suicide rate mm-hmm. because of what it does for your mental health. Essentially mm-hmm. for me, my body couldn't produce serotonin for yeah. half the month. And whilst that is like the most extreme form of this sort of like hormone imbalance, females do have a, on average 28 day hormone cycle where we have different fluctuations in our energy levels in our strengths like it's becoming i listened to this really cool podcast where um female athletes were talking about how they have completely changed their like training schedule to like adapt with like day by day like where they're at and yet we're still expected to work to the same nine to five job every day and i also i don't know about you both and but i know you know 10 percent of females have endometriosis i've being someone who's had like pretty gnarly period pains for a long time in my life that has like completely inhibited like me like I miss like I miss one fourth of year nine because mm. I was like out at home with my period the whole time um and I also think you know the rates of mothers returning to work and the poor like maternity leave policies and the inflexibility and impredictability in what's the opposite of predictability unpredictability unpredictability (laughs) unpredictability um in working hours for like mothers and stuff like that just like means that we're kind of like consistently at a disadvantage because of the fact that we can produce a child that men are not at that same yeah they don't even think they have to think about it i always say to my boyfriend because i struggle with this a lot I have PCOS, adenomyosis, and I think I have PMDD because a few weeks ago I was bed bound for like three or four days. Like I just could barely do anything. 
I didn't take time off, but I was just working from my bed for like eight hours, just doing my best. Um, and I always get frustrated with my boyfriend and I'm just like, you don't even have to think about it. You wake mm -hmm. up and you feel the same way every day mm -hmm. and you don't have to think, cause I'm 27. So thinking about like, okay, next five years, do I want kids? Like, and the first thing I think of is my career. Like what will happen? I will have to be the one to make these like bigger sacrifices, taking the time off work. And I'm so envious of men, I think, that they don't have to think, like project their future so far ahead in that same way that we do because we're like tied to our bodies. So mm. we think about, we're so much more aware of our bodies as well. Mm. Um, so I'm also very passionate about, I'm learning to like work as much as I can with my cycle. I literally like, could not recommend it more. Even if you're mm. someone who doesn't have like bad PMS or PMDD mm. or anything like that, like it has honestly, like, I'll just like not schedule meetings on yeah. like certain days and just be like, no, you know, what? I'm going to like do my own work. But if I have to get up at 7am, like I'll just be like wrecked for the rest of the day. And it like just changes so much. And like when I'm ovulating, I'm like, I'm going to do everything. Yes. I launched the book on ovulation day. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you timed it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this month is the first time I've written period coming slowed down in my calendar yeah, nice. and I'm going to like yeah actually like relaxing this weekend and like just learning that is so yeah. it help. it does help and then also 48 hours before I always do period coming that's why you're crying yes. <laughs> like reminder <100%. laughs> like, yeah. um no it's such a thing we'll have a, we have a full yeah we could do a whole episode on this it's such a thing but um yeah bottom line is I think that and I think the problem is that society in the way that humans are supposed to live you know like nomadically before capitalism was very much geared to this like mm. it was understood that it wasn't seen as a weakness in women that you know we were on our periods we weren't expected to do these things it was seen as normal and okay and encouraged to rest in this time child rearing was something that was done by a whole community mm. um and capitalism very much favors heteronormativity and very much favors monogamy and very much favors women being, you know, producing a child and then someone else having to like earn that income to like mm. subsidize it. And the whole thing's just like broken. Know. The whole thing's broken. <laughs> no, completely. Um, I love it. It's like systems broken. Okay, next yeah. question. Um, honestly, we are essentially getting to the end of our time, but we have a last question for you that we ask um, each other at the end of each episode, as well as any guests that come along. And that is, um, what is something that you've really enjoyed reading, watching, or listening to just recently? Do you have a recommendation mm. to share with our listeners? It's so cliche, but I only just read it and um, Handmaid's Tale. Have you guys read it? I've not read it yet. It's I've so read, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really good. I think the book is better than the show. I haven't watched the show. I watched one episode and I was like, no. No. It's not the, same. the book was just incredible. Like the way she writes about yeah. things, like her inner monologue. And I. I wish it was, I didn't have a pen on me when I read most mm. of it, but I wish that I like annotated it. Cause it was just things she said. And I was it's just like, you're just like being so raw about feelings that so many of us have felt. And then also the whole like idea of it. It's so dystopian, but it's also so like, Oh, this is the U S right now. And yeah. it's just like, mm -hmm. it's so good. So I like love that. And then I made my boyfriend read it straight after me so we could talk about it. And then we both bought testaments, the second one. And now we're like taking turns reading it <laughs> like at love the same time. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, um, 
that's what I'm reading at the moment. So good. As a side note, I recommended this book a few weeks back, but I'd recommend it to you as well. Um, Margaret Atwood like had a little quote at the top. Uh, it's called The Power, and it's by Naomi Alderman, and it is again that like dystopic kind of like sci-fi book, and it's so good. And obviously, it touches on so much about gender and like power and stuff. But it was a really good read, which I'm I think so it's like it. probably the lighter version of Hamid's Tale, to be honest. <laughs> but um, yeah. Oh, good. Love so a book recommendation. Yeah. Oh, and also if we're going to recommend books, Consent Lay Bear's pretty good apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the author's pretty great. <laughs> and if people want to know more about you and Consent Lay Bear, where can they find you and where can they buy the book? You can buy the book in all good bookstores in Australia and New Zealand. You can also buy it online um, if you just Google Consent Lay Bear or Chanel Contos book. Um, and then my Instagram is at Chanel C and then um, we also have at Teachers Consent where we continue to provide holistic consent education to the young people of Australia via social media. So follow both of those. Amazing. Thank you so much Thank for joining you guys. us today. Thank you guys. so much fun. It flew yeah. by. I know. I want longer. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. Yeah. Alrighty. Three up. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.